You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. I was acting as volunteer aide to General Johnston on the field. He was upon the right wing where the enemy, being strongly posted, made an obstinate stand. As you remember, our troops, after a long and desperate struggle, wavered for a moment. When General Johnston rushed in front of the line of battle, rallied our troops, ordered and led the charge. The enemy fell back between a fourth and one-half mile when the firing became very heavy on each side. Our advanced position exposed our troops to a raking fire of a battery of the enemy on our left. The last order the general gave was to direct me to order Colonel Statham of Mississippi to charge that battery. I immediately delivered the order and rode back to the side of the general, said to him, General, your order is delivered and being executed. Just at this moment, the general sank down in his saddle, leaning over to the left. I instantly put my arm around him, pulling him to me, saying, General, are you wounded? He said, Yes, and I fear seriously. Captain Wickham being on his left and I upon his right, we held him upon his horse until we guided his horse from the crest of the hill to the ravine where we lifted him from his horse, laid him upon the ground. I took his head in my lap. He never spoke after answering my question though continued to breathe for twenty-five or thirty minutes. Immediately after dismounting the general, Captain Wickham went to the surgeon. I sent a soldier to bring any staff officers he could find to me. Isham G. Harris, Governor of Tennessee, Staff of General Albert Sidney Johnston After riding some distance and hearing of the general's staff in several places, I saw an officer riding rapidly toward me, and soon recognized Major O'Hara. He had taken me for a surgeon. When he had started out in the morning, Dr. David M. Yandel, chief surgeon to General Johnston, said to me, George, we are going to have some hot work today, and that coat of yours is a bad color. I had on an officer's blue coat worn by the Federals, with the insignia of a first lieutenant of the Confederates. So we swapped coats, his being gray with black trimmings. Major O'Hara then told me that General Johnston was seriously, if not fatally, wounded, and his staff were looking for a surgeon. Seeing me in the uniform of one, he had come after me. He said the general was in an awfully hot place, but I said I was going to him, and he replied, We will go together. We soon joined as sad a group as ever assembled on a battlefield or around a dying bed. General Johnston was such a lovable man that his staff, as well as his soldiers, worshipped him, and his staff seemed stupefied with grief at the great calamity. He was not seriously wounded. A six-shooter navy ball or a buckshot had severed an artery just below the right knee, and he had slowly bled to death. There was a little stream of dark blood that had run along the ground and formed a little puddle six feet from where he was lying. 
A simple tourniquet made with a stick and a handkerchief would have stopped the flow of blood until medical aid could have been had. Unfortunately, Dr. Yandel had been ordered by the general to stop and attend to a lot of wounded Confederate and Union soldiers. No doubt his kind heart was moved when he saw the old familiar blue uniforms and recalled his brother officers from the old army and the scenes they had passed through together. Lieutenant George W. Baylor, Staff of General Albert Sidney Johnston. everyone. Thanks for downloading episode number 117 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. So we know we keep saying that we're going to get to the hornet's nest, but upon further reflection, we decided we'd risk you guys' wrath and switch topics this week. And so we're going to use this show to talk about the death of Albert Sidney Johnston during the Battle of Shiloh. Uh, Before we get too far, though, we just wanted to remind you guys of our book recommendation from a bonus episode we did way back around episode number 83. And in that bonus episode, we talked about Sidney Johnston's life story and then recommended Albert Sidney Johnston, Soldier of Three Republics by Charles Rowland. And we'll have um, another book recommendation for you at the end of this episode, But we just wanted to remind you about that biography in case you'd like to read about Sidney Johnston's life story for yourself. So that's Albert Sidney Johnston, Soldier of Three Republics by Charles Rowland. And now, having taken care of that, back to the Battle of Shiloh. For the first several hours of combat at Shiloh, Sidney Johnston had exercised command from near the front, leaving P.G.T. Beauregard in the Confederate Army's rear to direct reinforcements into the fight. We've already talked about Johnston's decision to lead from the front on the Confederate right and how his purpose seems to have been that, in this decisive battle, he wanted to be sure of making his intentions clear to the units under his command and making sure they did exactly as he wanted. By early afternoon, though, Sidney Johnston made another choice— to go from exercising command near the front to leading troops directly from the front lines. Now, during the Civil War, the dangerous job of leading troops by direct personal example was expected of regimental officers and was often practiced by brigade commanders, but much less often by higher-ranking officers commanding divisions and corps, and almost never by an army commander. Nevertheless, Sidney Johnston obviously realized that the presence of the commanding general out in front on the firing line could have a significant impact on that sector of the battlefield. If the rank-and-file soldiers had respect and affection for the top general and desire to impress him and not disappoint him, then they would be inspired and motivated to fight longer and more aggressively than they would otherwise. But for those potential benefits, the price to be paid was the sharply increased risk that the general would suffer serious wounds or death, leaving the army without its top commander. Leading from the front was significantly more dangerous than leading from close behind the front lines. 
But that afternoon, as Sidney Johnson watched attack after attack fail to dislodge Hurlbut's stubborn Federals in the peach orchard to the right of the hornet's nest, he apparently believed the time had come for him to accept the risk. Despite the Confederates' advantage in numbers, the Federals among the peach trees doggedly held their ground, and so Johnston galloped his Big Bay thoroughbred, Fire Eater, over to the brigade of Colonel William S. Statham, four Tennessee and two Mississippi regiments. The brigade was drawn up in a gully, sheltering from the enemy fire. Riding up and down the line, Johnston impressed on the men the urgency of the moment. As he rode along the line, the men lifted up their muskets, and Johnston, leaving his sword in its scabbard, leaned out and tapped their bayonets with the tin cup he had picked up earlier from the captured Federal camp. As he did so, he said, These must do the work. Men, they are stubborn. We must use the bayonet. At the center of Statham's line, Sidney Johnston wheeled Fire Eater toward the enemy, shouted, I will lead you, and rode up the slope toward the Widow Bell's cotton field. Statham's brigade surged out of the gully, following Sidney Johnston. Farther to the east, on the other side of the Hamburg-Savannah Road, the brigade of John S. Bowen joined the advance, keeping pace with Statham's men. The rebels charged forward across the cotton stubble, and about halfway across the field, Sidney Johnston turned aside to let the attack sweep on toward the peach orchard. The Yankees among the peach trees had mowed down many of the Confederate attackers, but this time the rebels pressed on into the inferno of gunfire, and just as it began to look as if the two sides would indeed cross bayonets, the Union line began to waver and then gave way. As the Federals abandoned their position in the peach orchard, Sidney Johnston, watching from the south side of the Bell Cotton Field, was in high spirits. At least two bullets had struck Fire Eater. A spent bullet had struck Johnston on the outside of the right thigh, but would have done no more than merely sting him, while around with more velocity had, as an aide described it, quote, struck the edge of the sole of his left boot, cutting the sole clear across and ripping it off to the toe, end quote. Nevertheless, Johnston laughed as he took his foot out of the stirrup and, flapping the loose sole of the boot, joked that, quote, they didn't trip me up that time. Tennessee Governor Isham Harris, who was acting as aide to Johnston during the battle, returned from getting a Tennessee regiment started on its attack across the cotton field. As Harris rode up, Sidney Johnston displayed his boot and told him, Governor, they came very near to putting me hors de combat in that charge. Harris anxiously asked if the bullet had touched him, but Johnston replied, No, and just at that moment there was a new outbreak of firing to the front. A Union battery had started to shell the rebels from a new position just to the west of the peach orchard. Sidney Johnston immediately sent a staff officer off to bring up a Confederate battery to counter the Federal fire, and then turning to Harris, he said, quote, Order Colonel Statham to wheel a regiment to the left, charge, and take that battery. The governor galloped off to deliver the order to Statham. After dispatching another staff officer on a different errand, the commanding general was left almost alone, with only one aide, Captain W. Lee Wickham. Not long after that, as Wickham later recalled, he thought he heard a bullet strike something, though whether it was Johnston, Fire Eater, or neither, he wasn't sure. The sound, though, made Wickham turn around, 
but to all appearances, Sidney Johnston seemed to be fine. Very shortly after that, Harris returned from Statham's position and reported to Johnston that his order was being carried out. No sooner had he spoken, though, than the general sagged in his saddle and started to slump to one side. Before he could topple to the ground, however, Harris caught him by the collar and drew him back up, even as an alarmed Wickham moved in on the other side of Fire Eater. Harris asked, General, are you wounded? And Johnston, whose face the governor thought looked, quote, deadly pale, end quote, replied carefully and with effort, Yes, and I fear seriously. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Albert Sidney Johnston was desperately wounded. Harris and Wickham, one on each side of Fire Eater, supported the slumping Johnston and led the three horses back to more sheltered ground, away from the enemy fire that was still sweeping this part of the battlefield. Once they reached the bottom of a nearby hollow, the two men carefully lifted Johnston out of his saddle and laid him on the ground. Not knowing the exact nature of the general's wound, but aware that the situation was serious, Harris sent Wickham galloping off to find a surgeon, telling him to send back the first one he found, but not to stop until he found Sidney Johnston's personal surgeon, Dr. Yandel. Earlier that morning, Sidney Johnston had detached Yandel to tend to a large group of wounded of both sides near Prentice's captured camps. Since then, Yandel had found no shortage of work, and he hadn't rejoined Johnston's headquarters group. While cradling Johnston's head in his lap, Governor Harris searched for a wound, but found none. Harris later said, quote, With eager anxiety, I asked many questions about his wounds, to which he gave no answer, not even a look of intelligence, end quote. At that point, another staff officer, Major Theodore O'Hara, rode up, and not knowing what else to do, he or Harris tried to pour some brandy down Johnston's throat. The general swallowed once. Then O'Hara rushed off again to try to find help. Growing increasingly desperate, Harris, who had apparently noticed that Johnston's leg was bleeding, but thought the general must have a more serious injury somewhere, again searched for a wound, even tearing open Johnston's shirt, but couldn't find where the general was hurt. O'Hara returned with a couple of other staff officers, one of them Sidney Johnston's brother-in-law and close friend, Colonel William Preston. Sidney Johnston was still breathing, but was unresponsive, when Preston dismounted, rushed to his side, and cried out, 
Johnston, do you know me? Like Harris, Preston vainly searched for a wound on the general's torso. One of the officers tried administering another swig of brandy, but this time the liquor ran out of his mouth, and then Harris noticed that Sidney Johnston had stopped breathing. Someone felt for a pulse and couldn't find one. In the horrified silence in the hollow, Preston asked, My God, is it so? It was. Albert Sidney Johnston was dead, becoming the highest-ranking officer of either side to be killed on a battlefield during the Civil War. It was perhaps 2.30. It had been nearly 30 minutes since Harris and Wickham had led the wounded general into the hollow. During that time, Sidney Johnston had bled to death after being struck by a bullet in the back of his right leg, behind and just below the knee, lacerating but not severing the artery there. In the excitement of battle, Sidney Johnston probably didn't think the wound was serious. He had probably been hit about 20 minutes before Harris saw him reel in the saddle. In the end, it was the slow but steady loss of blood that caused Albert Sidney Johnston's death. In his pocket was a tourniquet that could have saved his life. Sidney Johnston, an old soldier, knew how to use it, but he apparently didn't realize the seriousness of the wound until he was too far gone to apply it himself or tell Harris to do so. If Dr. Yandel had been present, he would have certainly known what to do, but he was not present being still back with the wounded soldiers who Sidney Johnston had ordered him to attend to. In his book, Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, Stephen Woodworth explains that, quote, Johnston had chosen to use his presence as army commander leading from the front in order to inspire and motivate his troops beyond what would otherwise have been possible. The risk he accepted by that choice was the chance of his own wounding or death and the Army's consequent decapitation. As events played out, both results had occurred. Johnston's extraordinary personal leadership had motivated the men of Statham's brigade to advance when nothing else had sufficed to do so, and their advance probably sparked the simultaneous advances of Bowen's brigade and the other units involved in the assault. Johnston's active direction, as a leader near the front, had set up the assault, and his dramatic example, as a leader in front, had made it happen. The price turned out to be his life and the Army's loss of its commander in the midst of the battle. With the next episode, we'll get back to the story of the battle itself, and in the course of our narrative, we'll get to the point where Sidney Johnston falls, but we just wanted to cover that event in detail here in a separate episode so that when we get to that point in our story, we won't have to interrupt the broader flow of the narrative in order to explain what happened to him, because now you already know. Uh, but later on, we will talk about what happened after Sidney Johnston's death and after PGT Beauregard found out that he was in command of the battle. Uh, so hopefully all of that makes sense, or in time, it all will make sense. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Generals South, Generals North, The Commanders of the Civil War Reconsidered by Alan Axelrod. This is a great book to have handy if you want to brush up on your knowledge of a certain commander, since it presents biographical sketches of 24 of the top Civil War generals, 
12 from the Confederacy and 12 from the Union. And besides those informative but straightforward biographical sketches, uh, the author also explores each man's reputation by rating him with from one to four stars, one star denoting a losing commander, two, a competent commander, three, a winning commander, and four stars, a standout commander. Uh, So check out Axelrod's book for yourself and see where your favorite generals fall on that scale. And if you're wondering about Albert Sidney Johnston, uh, he's in the book, but his rating is listed as incomplete. And he's the only one in the book to get that rating, so apparently Axelrod gave him a bit of a pass because of his tragic death during the Battle of Shiloh. You can find General South, Generals North, The Commanders of the Civil War Reconsidered by Alan Axelrod, and all of our other book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And we also wanted to thank everyone who's still leaving us those great five-star reviews on iTunes. Uh, we've received some really nice ones lately. Uh, although we did get another one-star review recently, um, which we often find just as interesting as the five-star reviews, since the bad reviews pretty often let us know we're on the right track with what we're doing with the podcast. Uh, for example, this latest one-star review called us Lincoln cultists and said what we're sharing on the podcast is nothing but northern biased propaganda. Uh, you know, so obviously if someone like that disagrees with us, then we're doing something right. Lincoln cultists. I have to admit, that's a good one. Uh, and now I'll turn it over to my fellow cult member as we sign off. <laughs> okay. Anyway, we do want to say thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next time when we continue with the story of the Battle of Shiloh. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.